Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. What was I thinking? The problem is, of course, while you learn more in your bad deals, you really don't want to get any smarter because you don't want to do any bad deal. It's of humiliating and humbling. And I think investors actually, sometimes they remember the bad deals more than the good ones. Today's episode is from the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with high performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. On this episode, I get to talk with billionaire philanthropist, Bill Conway. Bill went from being born into a working class family to becoming one of the wealthiest people in the world. He is one of three co-founders of at one time, the most successful private equity firm in the history of money. And now he and his wife spend much of their time diving into philanthropy and generosity, starting with using his money to create a world that has as many nurses as possible. In this episode, we talk about his early leadership lessons growing up, his first couple of jobs when he had a boss before he was a boss, what he looks for in companies and managers when he's thinking of investing, along with his philosophy of generosity, what he looks for in someone to be generous towards and what he wished he'd done differently. Enjoy the show. Bill, thanks for being on our show, man. It means a lot that you make time to, to hang out with us for an hour. Thank you for inviting me. This is going to be great. And it, it, it's been a blast getting to know you via all the different mechanisms of researching people. And so I think we're going to have a lot of fun. I want to start with a quote that I found that you said, and I think this will be nice to frame our whole conversation. The quote I found, and maybe this, this was attributed to you. So maybe you said it, maybe you didn't. So if, if you didn't say it, you can tweak it. But this is a quote. It said, as you're trying to build your net worth, don't confuse it with your self-worth, which is much more important. And I'd love for you to talk about where that quote comes from from, from, from you and, and what that, why that means so much to you? Well, somebody actually said it to me. And so uh, a friend of mine, a person I have a lot of respect for, but not like my father or something like that, mm. who I is probably my hero. Mm. I would say that uh, it really means exactly what it said. And I think that, um, you know, when I was young, of course, I spent a lot of time trying to build my net worth. And uh, I succeeded, thankfully. But yeah. I also was able to build the self, self-worth self at the same time. I was lucky. I, I grew up, I had great parents and a brother and three sisters, and they helped keep me on the path for uh, who are you as opposed to how much money do you have? And obviously, you know, you've done, you've done quite well in the financial realm. Can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of self-worth for you? Like, is there a beginning, middle and end for that for you? Hopefully the end hasn't happened yet. Uh, yeah. I see myself as still evolving, Jason. It really is one of these things where um, I've changed certainly over the years. I'll tell you a little bit about me. I grew up yeah. in New Hampshire in an Irish Catholic family. I was the mm-hmm. oldest of five children. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how lucky I was. I, uh, I had good health. I was uh, smart enough. I had great parents and siblings. When I was in high school, I went to a public high school in New Hampshire They had a program that was really life-changing for me, and it was uh, they took about 200 high school juniors uh, out of their public high school for six weeks in the summer between their junior year and their senior year of high school. And we were sent to St. Paul School Mm -hmm. in Concord, New Hampshire. And you could study subjects that were not taught in New Hampshire high schools in the 1960s. So (laughs) they were, you know, like, for example, Chinese or oceanography or, you know, advanced mathematics or things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I was one of the, the people selected to do this and did it for six weeks. And it was life-changing. I, I studied advanced mathematics 
Uh, I thought I was as smart as the other people who were doing it at the time. And I ended up then going to Dartmouth. Uh, and I thought I'd be a mathematics major. But of course, I wasn't smart enough to be a mathematics major at Dartmouth. And <laughs> ended up majored in economics, which worked out okay for me too. Well, let's go back for a second. So was the thing that was most valuable for you during those six weeks that you got introduced to advanced mathematics? Or was it the culture? Like, What about those six weeks was formative for you? It was both the culture and being around 200 other relatively smart kids uh, from uh, you know, the state of New Hampshire was really a, a great thing for me. Yeah. And then the advanced mathematics was really special too. I, I saw the beauty of mathematics, so if I could phrase it that way. Yeah. You know, well, my, uh, my father was a math teacher and that's how he used to talk. And I always thought that, that that was crazy. What makes you say that mathematics are beautiful? Oh, I think it's elegant. It all makes sense. You know, there, are, there aren't guesses involved. It's really, um, I don't know, for me, it was just beautiful. And I can actually see why mathematics and music are related in some ways. You may have heard that many of the great musicians are also mathematicians yeah. as well, because there's an elegance to, to both those subjects. And so it, it was a combination, I'd say. Yeah, well, it's crazy about music. I mean, do, do you play, by the way? Do you, is there any instruments you play? I do not. I... Uh, I used to play the clarinet, but I wasn't wasn't very good at it. So it's uh, uh, that that happens, I guess. So you found your your the beauty and expression of of, uh, of mathematics. So that you're at Dartmouth, you're studying advanced mathematics at Dartmouth. Keep going. I did well in the in I in the first math class I took. It was uh, an advanced calculus class. So I got an A in it, and I said, "Okay, I'm on the way." The second math class, I struggled. I saw how there were a number of people in the class who were just so much smarter and better prepared than I was and I had a better mind for the mathematics. I got in the first quiz that they gave a D hmm. and uh, I thought, uh-oh. And uh, I worked like crazy and was able to get an A in the class and never took another mathematics class. I changed my major. I've got to go do something else here. And, and Dartmouth is, was actually known for its mathematics programs. It's where they invented the basic computer language, for example, was in uh, invented at Dartmouth. So oh, wow. it was... Top shelf. It was, it was top shelf, but mathematics wasn't for me, at least uh, at the highest levels. Did you pivot to finance from there? Well, I was, uh, you know, it, it was a different era then to jump to my uh, ultimate graduate. I studied economics. Okay. Yep. They didn't really have finance majors at Dartmouth, and I did fine in that. And when I graduated from Dartmouth, it wasn't like today. I think today many people really have a very, very defined image of what they want to do or a very specific job they wanted to. Mm. And I wanted a job. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't that I wanted a special job. I graduated from college uh, 50 years ago, in 1971, aging myself a bit there. <laughs> I interviewed with Procter & Gamble and Exxon and the First National Bank of Chicago and Citibank. I ended up getting a job with um, First Chicago. Yeah. Partly they were going to pay for my MBA. They paid for me to get an MBA at night yeah. for free at the University of Chicago. Part of why you picked First National was because they were willing to invest in, in you and you were wanting to invest continually in yourself? Partly, but really it was more that I was the oldest of five children. Mm -hmm. And I had a brother who was one year younger than I was and he went to Dartmouth and I had three sisters after the two of us who were going to go to college as well, hopefully. And they did. And it was a... Uh, I couldn't put the burden on myself and my family for really kind of a to uh, you know be going to graduate school and paying it and everything else. I think it's tough. And and today, of course, you know you see the student debt that people graduate with, yeah. and and I think it's really kind of tough because 
some of the decisions end up being made for them because yeah. they have a big pile of debt. They have to go to a job that makes money or does various other things as opposed to maybe what they want to do. Yeah. So then just to touch in on this from the beginning, what was your self-worth journey like in high school, in college, right before you got to First National? How would you have identified with that journey? Uh, I, you know, it's probably not as... It, it probably was in later years that it got more formed, hmm. uh, except, you know, but I, I'd been raised, you know, uh, well-raised by my father and mother who had a good set of values. Hmm. And, and that really helped me. They were both great people. I was lucky that I was, you know, in a unified family. Father yeah. and mother stayed together. Yeah, I was uh, Catholic uh, growing up and I became, I'd say over the years, maybe more Catholic. And that was part of it. I think the Catholic social teachings have uh, resonated a lot with me over the years. Mm. But there were, you know, a couple of events that happened as I aged that affected me a lot. And I'll tell you about one of them. It's now an okay time to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it isn't the chronology, but this was maybe 25 years or so ago. Mm -hmm. I was walking down on the street outside my office. I would sometimes go to church in the morning at um, St. Patrick's Church, which is near my office. And there was this man walking down the street toward me, and he was wearing a plastic trash bag. You know, before that, maybe I had always seen the people who were homeless, and I I didn't want to see them, I think would be an honest comment. Hmm. It's not they were invisible, but I kind of wish they were invisible in a way. Yeah. But when I saw this guy coming down the street wearing the bag, I thought, Am I the only one who sees this guy? Mm. And we can't let this guy just walk down the street wearing a trash bag. By then, I'd, I'd gotten to the point where I would talk to the people on the street. I would uh, ask them their name and where they spent the night or things like that, or yeah. give them a Dunkin' Donuts gift card yeah. instead of cash or something. And But this was, this was a real kind of life-changing event. I, I told them to sit down, and there was a little outdoor restaurant there, and he sat down in a chair. And I ran back to my office and I got him a T-shirt too, you know, and people are always giving T-shirts of this cause or that cause. And, and went out and I was surprised the guy was still sitting there when I came back uh, <laughs> yeah. in his trash bag and I, I gave him the, the T-shirt. And I don't know, it's a little thing in so many ways, but to me it kind of was, uh, you know, your self-worth and also related there to it. It's a lot more than just giving money away. I mean, you kind of, who are you as opposed to, how much money do you have, as I said before? Yeah, well, and even what I hear in that story is that self-worth is also tied up in your capacity to value others. I agree with that. And in fact, I think that it's important not to think that you're better than other people. You know, sometimes you're luckier or different. I think sometimes people make bad decisions. I was lucky that I didn't. But I never thought that I was better than this guy or that person. I did think that things had worked out better for me and that, uh, you know, maybe I also began to think things differently in terms of, as opposed to what are we going to do about this? What am I going to do about this? Mm. And that, mm. that, that affected me. And over the years then I've kind of continued, I guess, down that path a bit and, uh, trying to help people and, uh, regretting when I don't help them more, maybe sometimes too. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that actually, that was one of the things you mentioned in your commencement address that I want to come back to in a little bit. So 
we've had a nice theme there of generosity and philanthropy. And I know that's a big part of your world now. We're going to end the conversation there. Let's go back to First National. This is your, this is your first real job. <laughs> you spent 10 years there. So you got a lot of reps in. Were there any like leadership lessons there from your first 10 years in, in the adult world? Yes. I was in a group of um, the first Chicago head at the, in those days where they would, uh, for about a dozen people, they would take us right out of college and have us go to business school at night. And frankly, uh, you could either go to Northwestern or uh, Chicago in those days, mm. assuming you could get in, which you know everybody pretty much could. If the bank was going to give you a free scholarship, you could get in <laughs> to those schools. Mm -hmm. And and so the people that I was that I was working with were great. I was in a kind of a rotational program in the beginning, rotating through various departments of the bank, mm -hmm. and it was it was really great. I, I did some wonderful things. I remember one of my jobs was. I was about 25 or 26 years of age, and there'd been a scandal at the bank, and uh, there'd been a loss due to some uh, transaction. Mm -hmm. And the CEO of the bank called me into his office, and I was, I was a loan officer at the time, and he said, I need you to go down to the back office and uh, kind of be the number two person in the back office. Mm -hmm. And it was about 800 people. It was three shifts a day, three shifts uh, yeah, every day. Uh, as you know, the check processing and things like that would happen. And I said to the chairman, if I'm the best person on the, in, in the company to do this job, then we got a big problem. <laughs> and, I, and I really meant it. And I, but I did it for a couple of years. And it was really eye-opening for me. It was really uh, you know, working with people who were you know, doing, doing the work and uh, yeah. getting it done. It could be processing the checks or the wire transfers or in those days, there was a lot of uh, currency counting and coin business, and there was a big silver storage uh, in the in the bank on the bottom floors of the bank, and it was really a, a wonderful learning experience of of working with people other than you know the MBAs, if you will. I was working with uh, yeah. people who were you know counting the money or or sending out the wire transfer or managing the lockbox operations or something like that. Yeah, well, because this is the 70s. Banking in the 70s, I imagine, looks a lot different than banking now. So there are no ones and zeros. There aren't any computers, really. Everything is everything is literally manual. Everything's manual labor. Is that right? Well, the, the computers had come in, obviously. For example, the processing of the checks was a very big job because Chicago, in the, being in the center of the country, checks would come from New York, drawn on, let's say, Bank of America in San Francisco, and would be deposited in, in Bank of America's account at, at Chicago. And then we had to get the account, the check, if you will, mm -hmm. from Chicago to deposit it in the bank in San Francisco. Uh, but there were there was it was uh, there was a lot of computer usage. I would say still, but in those days there were punch cards. It was a yes. uh, a very different world than uh, than today. Uh, you know, remember in those days banks banks had their job of you know buying money and selling money effectively. Mm -hmm. They buy money through deposits and. CDs and the like, and they would sell it through loans, whether it's car loans or mortgage loans or whatever. And today, banks are a very, very different uh, creature than they are than when they were back then. You got a front row seat to the evolution of the banking industry. I'll tell you, one of the other uh, evolutions happened with the ATMs. Hmm. Because First Chicago was located in Illinois, which is a, at that time was, there were no branch banks in Illinois. So if you were the First National Bank of Chicago, you had one branch. Huh. And that was the main branch. And of course, I think at that time, First Chicago was like the fifth largest bank in the United States. 
the first floor of the bank was maybe had hundreds of tellers. Wow. And people would come into the bank and they would deposit uh, their money, their paycheck. They'd have a passbook, which would show the, the deposit being made. Uh, they could uh, pay their utility bills. They'd pay their mortgage bills. They would pay for their car loans. And so the, it was a kind of a, this huge kind of engineering problem of how do you get these thousands of people into these tellers to get all these transactions processed? Yeah. Well, what happened was in the early 70s, ATMs came into, it came into play. And here's the interesting thing, I think, to me and probably to some of our listeners, and that would be First Chicago would have all these tellers and they would then station uh, young people in front of these machines and they would say, mister, come on over here and use this machine. Uh-huh. You don't have to wait in that line. You can come here and make your deposit or make your get cash or do whatever you want. And what happened was people didn't want to use the ATM. They trusted the human more than they trusted the machine. Yeah. Whereas today, the exact opposite is true. (laughs) I mean, if you go to the ATM and you say, you go to the ATM and you want, let's say, 10, $10 bills to get $100. I I know I'm a pretty successful fellow, but I never count it. Because I know it's going to be $100 every time. If a human gave it to me, I'd say, well, let's just make sure that's 10 tens there. (laughs) But with with a machine, I know the machine's going to be be right. And I think today, many times, and and some of this, of course, is somewhat risky. People trust the machine more than they do trust the human. Yeah. And that's a whole other conversation. What's interesting with ATMs, I imagine that was completely disruptive for the banking industry. Because I think starting a branch costs like $50 million dollars. And now you can do it for a lot less because you can have automated tellers everywhere. And they do. And the tellers can do a lot more too. That's fascinating. Okay, let's go back. So you're, you're at First Chicago. You, for two years at least, you are working with a wider swath. You're not just surrounded by, by Ivy League NBAs. You get to work with the whole breadth of, of humanity. And by the way, a question about that. Obviously, that was formative for you. What is the benefit, do you think, of people... Because I think a lot about the stratification of people who spend their time, and, and oftentimes it's really easy to spend time, no matter what your socioeconomic status, it's really easy to spend time with just people at that level. Uh, what would you say is the benefit of all different types interacting with each other? I think it's a, it's a huge benefit. I think when people are you know, 15 to 20 years of age, let's say, I think it's good to mix them up a little bit and let them see other people and other people's values and other people's strengths and weaknesses and you know, the uniqueness of each individual. Uh, when they get to be 40, if they want to hang around with everybody who's just like them, that's great. But I think when they're younger, I think it's better for them to uh, to be able to mix it up a little bit with people who are different w- with them, you know? And I think it's, you know, I think an example of today's world would be you turn on the TV or you walk into a room and if you're one type of a person and CNBC is on, well, the first thing you do is change the channel to Fox. And if you're another type of person and you walk in the room and it's you know CNBC or Fox, you change it to the other channel. Yeah. And, and people don't really get the benefit of anybody else's viewpoint. They get kind of the same thing that uh, they're used to getting every day and their mind is made up and they like their mind being made up and they don't want to change their mind. That's right. And I, I think that's a, yeah, a little bit of a, an issue and a problem too. 
I think that way too. And I'm going to ask you about your news intake here in a second. But one of the things I think I really appreciate about faith communities, and you mentioned your Catholic faith and going to mass, you know, mass or synagogue or, or temple, those types of things for thousands of years have been one of the few spaces where people of different socioeconomic statuses came and interacted with each other, different industries and those types of things. And I think now as we move away from that, culturally, there's a vacuum left where we don't really get to be around people who are different than us. That being said, Bill, what is your... What, how would you describe your news intake? Like, how do you, where do you go to get your view of the world? Because your view of the world has been pretty profitable for you. How do you educate yourself about, about society these days? Well, I read a lot, but um, I would say I'm just like everybody else, although I don't use social media at all. No. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on anything. Yeah. I, I don't need any public presence. And I'm frankly trying to be fairly private. And even this interview for me is something that I really don't do very often. I That's kind right, of, yeah. uh, generally I'm a very private person. I think that um, it's good to sometimes be a good listener is, mm. is one of the things that can help you. And also when you're kind of don't think you've got all the answers, it helps to be a good listener too and see what other people think and why they think that. Um, is part of being a good listener, assuming that you don't have all the answers? I think so. And I, you know, I know I don't have all the answers. And uh, I say to the young people here at Carlisle, although I'm not, I'm not making the investment decisions anymore here, I say, you know, I've made more bad deals than you're ever going to make. <laughs> and uh, and so I, and I don't want you to make the same mistakes I made. Mm. Uh, and there were plenty, but the fortunately the good ones outweighed the bad ones. And that's why I guess you're talking to me. <laughs> it's the main reason that I get to talk. Well, that we asked to talk to you. Your kindness is the main reason we're talking today. But the so okay. So then you're you're at First Chicago ten years, and then you move to MCI, and MCI's telecoms company. And you you get there right when I mean they've just broken up. They're successful in breaking up AT and T as a monopoly. They're about to have a really good run for what twenty years, and you're right there at the beginning of it. Well, what happened was at First Chicago, after I left the kind of the back office part of the bank, eventually I was running the technology lending group. In that technology group, MCI was one of the uh, big customers of uh, the bank. And in those days, it was uh, really, frankly, a, a big venture capital deal. Although I think when the bank got into it, they didn't see it that way. Mm. But it, it turned out to be that. And so I had a very good relationship with the, with the management there. And you know, it was kind of, a, it was in a workout, I would say, that loan for a couple of years. And uh, eventually I helped them kind of work out of it a little bit. And then I joined MCI as the treasurer in 1981. And then I ultimately became the, the CFO in 1984. And you're the youngest guy, you're the youngest guy on the management team at that time. Is that right? Yeah, but uh, I, you know, I don't know that I, I noticed it at that time. I just thought we were all working pretty hard. I think it was a group of people who, in their specific discipline, were really very, very good. You know, the salespeople, the marketing people, the engineering people, they were all really special. And I think it was a little bit of a crusade, us against AT&T. AT <laughs> and remember, AT&T was the monopoly. And in those days, AT&T controlled long-distance long local and international. Today, you know, you have all different kinds of carriers for your mobile phones and uh, for your long-distance and everything else. And it's it's different than it was, you know, 40 years ago now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then MCI had its, its run. It got acquired, I think, by Verizon or something. Well, it, it actually ended up, there was a, a stop uh, after I'd left. 
Now, now when I was there, I joined them. The company was about a hundred million mm. revenue, and when I left, the company was about two billion in revenue. So seven years later, wow. so it was really a fast-growing business. Yeah. I would say our growth was was um, really helped a lot by um, the high yield market in those days. The company had the ability to earn an enormous amount on the capital it employed. And today, one of the problems that uh, businesses have is they have a tough time earning high returns on the capital they employed. So it's very good, for example, everybody had cheap capital. Hmm. Like today, you know, interest rates are so low and equity valuations are very high. And so people, they can earn, let's say, 6%. Whereas MCI was earning 15 to 20% on its capital <laughs> employed. And so it, it could borrow money at 10 or 12%, and, and it did, and pay the money back and make money on the money. So you got a 2,000% growth over seven years, if I'm doing my math right. Was the headcount the same as well? No. No, 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 no. I don't know how, I don't know how much the headcount grew, but it was a relatively small company when I joined it. Uh, and over time, it became a, a more of a national carrier. Mm -hmm. You know, people didn't just want to make long-distance calls between Chicago and St. Louis. They wanted to call, you know, Chicago and Rome or whatever it would be. Yeah. And so it, it grew. Uh, but I don't know the extent of the people growth is I just knew the dollar growth right now. Man, that's one of the things I really envy about like investment firms or private equity or VCs is you can you can rapidly grow your revenue without growing your headcount, which is it's a it's a wonderful industry that way. Well, I think even even more than that, I think you have companies that today are really virtual companies. And for example, you can sometimes and we've invested in these companies and might have five or ten people. And yet be huge companies because they outsource the billing, they outsource the marketing, they outsource the production of the good, they outsource almost everything, let's say, other than the basics of their brand or something. And yep. and everything else they can outsource and uh, they can make money doing that too. Yep. And, and grow a big successful business. Well, and not to jump around too much, but I do want to dedicate, I think both of us are excited to have a conversation around generosity, which we're going to get to. Uh, that's a nice segue into your your life at the Carlisle Group. And there's a, a long history there. There's about a thousand different things we could talk about, but I want to I want to talk a little conceptually about this because it's it's a private equity firm. They you, you all have done very 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 well. I think in 2015 you were the largest private equity firm in the world or something based on some five year metric. But I don't want to talk necessarily about that. What I what I am interested in is your philosophy of investment, and I, and I want to take a second from this so we can have a conversation around it that'll be useful for our, for our audience. Because everyone is choosing how to invest their time. Everyone is choosing how to invest their money. Everyone is choosing really how to invest their lives. And I think there's a lot of parallels between private equity and how people make choices with how they choose their vocations, how they spend their time, their vacations, et cetera, their hobbies, their spirituality, all those types of things. So with that as, a, as kind of a general frame, Bill, I'd love to hear about your philosophy or what you've learned over the last several decades, being one of, one of the best investors in the world what do you look for when you're looking at a company? Are there and are there parallels between what what you all look for in a company versus what people should look for in other areas of their investment life? Well, there's a lot in that question. Yeah, I would yes, say, yes. Uh, Jason. <laughs> Sorry. I would say uh, first of all, I would work on what was important, and I think right today it sounds like such a, a small cliche, but I think frequently people work on what's urgent. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to empty their in email box, so they want to do this or do that, and their calendar's full of meetings. And, you know, I viewed myself as having a different job, which was people had entrusted, you know, billions of dollars to Carlisle, and I was the chief investment officer, and I had to take good care of the money. 
And so that was the single most important thing. I'd say also I was very focused on the people that worked with me. I was lucky to have a lot of very hardworking, very dedicated people who would, I'd say, share my value of our job is to take good care of our investors' money. And if we do that, everything is going to, uh, going to work out okay. Finally, I would say that one of the things that really helped us be very successful was some of the management teams that we worked with and supported. And I, um, you know, I, I would say that, first of all, the difference between the really outstanding manager and the very good manager is immense. Yeah. How would you define that? Well, it's, and it's also hard to, to you distinguish it at the front end. Mm. At the back end, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that this person was better than that person. Yes. But in the middle of it, you, you don't really know who's going to be great. You can't actually look at the resume and tell. I don't think you can interview a CEO for an hour and say he or she is going to be fabulous. Mm. It just doesn't work that way. I think it's fine to think that you have you know, a great gut for these things or you've got a little black powder in your pocket that you can sprinkle on people and they become great, yeah. great CEOs. But I think it also shows sometimes you have to be willing to change CEOs and you have to change them in two ways. Mm -hmm. One is if they're not doing the job, you have to really get rid of them and change them out sooner rather than later. And that's hard to do. And mm -hmm. I'd say it was very hard for me to do in my career because I wanted people to succeed. Yeah. I wanted to give them another chance. What can I do that's going to help the CEO be, be successful? Yeah. But you have to change them out. And even tougher is when people are doing an okay job and you think about, well, how good could this be if we had really the outstanding person mm. running this business rather than the okay person? And uh, that's tough to do, too, particularly because at various times, Carlisle might have had 200 portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. And so let's say 150 of them are running great, 40 of them are running really so-so, and 10 are kind of struggling. Uh, sometimes you spend your time working on the 10 that are struggling. Hmm. Whereas you can make a lot more money if you work on the 40 or the 150 uh, companies that are really uh, uh, already doing great sometimes. And so, but it, it's, um, I've seen it time and time again, where somebody who was really fabulous made all the difference, but I didn't necessarily know it on the front end either. It was learned over time. Wow. And then sometimes you can hire that person again to do it again in another company. Uh, but there, you know, and, I think also sometimes that people, I wouldn't say great managers can run anything. I don't think that's true, but. Uh, Maybe some kind of domain expertise or some transferable. Abso absolutely, yes. Yeah, um, my guess is you learn that the hard way too. Well, you do. And I think that, you know, one of the problems in the business is you can't, in my business, do too much trial and error. Mm. Because, you know, I, I have a saying that you, you learn more in your bad deals than you do in your good deals. Mm. On your good deals, you think, I was so smart, I saw this, I saw that, I knew this, we could do this, and it all worked out great. On the bad deals, you're just kind of smashing yourself saying, <laughs> what was I thinking? Yes. And the problem is, of course, while you learn, learn more in your bad deals, you really don't want to get any smarter because you don't want to do any bad deals. <laughs> they're, you know, they're very, it's a, you know, humiliating and humbling. And I think investors, actually, sometimes they remember the bad deals more than the good ones. You know, sometimes you'll have a portfolio and it's got 10 or 20 companies in it and eight or nine are doing wonderfully and the person's going to make three times their money on the fund. And all they want to do is talk about the deal that's got a problem. Mm. And uh, it's human nature, I think, to, to some extent, too. Yeah. 
Well, and that's brilliant. I want to reflect something back to you and see if I'm hearing you. This is good for me because I think oftentimes the question we're asking is, well, where, where's the squeaky wheel? Of course, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And then also we're asking, how can I help this person or these people improve? Whereas it sounds like the question that you're asking isn't just where is there room for improvement, but which people or companies or portfolios, if they do improve, have the maximum ROI. So like where is the maximum room for improvement versus where are the people who are struggling to get better? Am I hearing that right? Yes. And, and you know, I think also remember AI is not taking over the world yet. Yeah. We're all humans. And um, human interactions are, are so critical to even the success of a business. How do you get the most out of a sales force? How do you motivate the people who are doing the selling? Or how do you even motivate the people who are doing the coding or whatever it would, whatever it would be? There is some trial and error. Yeah. And, uh, you know, hopefully more successes than errors in that. And uh, it worked okay for us, I think. Yeah, yes, it did. <laughs> what are some of the early indicators of when a manager... Is right. I know that you can't, by the way, I think that's fairly provocative to say, you, I mean, you've done very well and to say, yeah, I, I can't tell who's going to win and who's going to lose. And I know that you can tell them they're not doing well. That's easy to tell. What are the early indicators of when a manager, when you're like, okay, yeah, this is going to work? I have found that the people who do well tend to get off to a really fast start. Hmm. That, um, and when a company's going to struggle, oftentimes it's obvious right away that they're going to struggle. Hmm. Rarely do you see them get off to a great start and then struggle after that. Yeah, interesting. Uh, in my experience. Um, but I'm sure there are exceptions to that, but that would be something. I, I do think a good a good start is, is the way to go. And, you know, in our businesses, remember, too, a lot of these businesses have significant amounts of debt on them. And so, you know, the equity, which we invest, cannot do well unless the debt does well and uh, gets paid off. And so you really have to take good care of the debt. And that can be a what sometimes a good motivator for managers too. Yeah. There's like a window. It sounds like there's a window of time where they've got to really get the gravel and the momentum going. Yeah. I'd say that's right. I'd say generally, if I make mistakes, I make them by waiting too long. Mm. But, you know, today, as I say, other people are making those decisions, not, not I, but, yeah. uh, uh, and they're probably making the same mistake, even though I've warned them about it because I, I did that mistake. Don't don't make that one. Make a different one. Yeah, that's great. That's a good pivot too, because I know that you've transitioned. I think in 2018, you transitioned into a different role in Carlisle, and now it's more of a. And how would you just? How would you describe? How would you not the title, but how would you describe your contribution these days? I'm still. I'd say uh, you know my title would be I'm, I'm a, you know chairman. Yeah. But I would say my my primary responsibility now and what I work on is both board activities, but really. Uh, still helping the senior deal doers at Carlisle, where occasionally they will ask me for my advice on what do I think about certain deals or certain trends or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think the business is different today than it was during uh, the heyday of my heyday, if I could call it that. Mm -hmm. If I had a heyday, it was back then. <laughs> and it would be that um, you, you just kind of, yeah, it, it's hard to explain the difference, but I think when we started, we were paid enormous amounts of money to do extraordinary deals. Mm. And today, we manage extraordinary amounts of money. And there's enormous pressure on us from our limited partners. They, they want to give us the money, and they want it invested as soon as possible. Yeah. And I think sometimes my standards are higher than the limited partners whose money I'm investing. Because, you know, I, they might say, get that money invested, 
give me a 10% rate of return and I'm going to be really happy. And I'm thinking, you know, 10% rate of return, that's not kind of the business. We've we've got to do better than that. And we usually do do better than that. And uh, so it's it's a different business today because it's so much bigger. I mean, Carlisle, when we started, we had $5 million. (laughs) <laughs> and today we have over 250 billion so it's you know it's, it's a whole different world it's a different world and yes. and and uh so now 2018 you pivot to chairman uh you know in 2019 you, and this is getting more into the generosity conversation which i know you and i both care about in 2019 i'm going to brag about you just for a second you donated 20 million to uh, Catholic University of America uh, to create the Conway School of Nursing, which is named after you and your wife. I think there's a mission to to help scholarship 10,000 nurses. Is that right or has that changed? Well, two things changed. One is the mission now is 20,000 nurses. Nice. And that is around the country and not just at Catholic University. And over time, my wife and I doubled the gift to Catholic U because they were going to double the size of the nursing school. Nice. And which is what we wanted them to do uh, to. And most of that, of course, does go to scholarships. Uh, I, I do think that, you know, people need these scholarships. And if they have them, I, I just don't think it's a great thing. People graduating from college with one hundred thousand dollars in debt or something like that. I no. think that's uh, that's too much. And they end up in a situation where their next job is, is selected for them because they have to go to a place where they can pay off one hundred thousand dollars in debt. Yeah, that's right. And instead of. You know, I love taking care of people in the inner city. Therefore, I want to go work in an inner city clinic. And somebody says, well, they only pay you $40,000. If you go be an anesthesia nurse in a hospital, you're going to make, you know, uh, $110,000. And so the person has to do maybe the job that they wouldn't love, but they have to for the for the money aspects of it. I would love to hear you talk about your philosophy of philanthropy, your philosophy of giving, how do you approach it? And I'd love to know if that has changed over time. But let's start right now with how, how do you look at these, you know, the next 20 years of your life and, and how do you look at stewarding the resources that you have? Well, first of all, I hope to have a lot lower number of resources by the time I'm not with you anymore. Uh, and I don't mean this this call, but I mean kind of in the, uh, yeah. you know, the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, I think sometimes people will talk about what they're going to do with their will or their estate. But I'm thinking people need help right now. Mm-hmm. And so we, we ought to give them help now. And they and financially, they can they can use some of the help I can give them. A little bit of background here. Yeah, please. That kind of formed my philosophy on giving. After the global financial crisis in 2008, my wife and I were taking a walk and talking about what we should do. And she said, what people need is a job. They don't need rich people say they give their money away before they die or when they die. People need a job. So I gave an interview with the Washington Post. And I said, if anybody has any ideas, send me an email. Hmm. And I received over 3,000 emails of ideas. Wow. And a group of people at Carlisle got together and they kind of tried to sort through these emails. They, they fell into three broad categories. One category, which was probably the biggest category, was the individual with a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, my husband uh, has died. My son is sick. I can't pay my rent. Help yeah. me. Kind of like one-offs. Yeah, one-off. And that that was, um, uh, you know, that's tough. And I uh, can deal with that in another kind of comment. Another group were, were ideas that really weren't very scalable. And I'll give you an example. Somebody has a garage. They have a tow truck. They have three employees. They say, if you give me X dollars, I'll get another tow truck and I can hire three more employees. 
Out of that, though, came one of the great things we could do to get people jobs was if they could get a degree in nursing. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't start out that I had a great interest in nurses in the beginning, but rather I had a great interest in jobs. Yeah. And nursing is going to be an exploding industry probably for the next 50 years. I think there's great job security. The jobs are tough, though. I mean, COVID has really shown me the resilience necessary on the part of these healthcare professionals. And, uh, you know, I see these very, very young people either studying or, or graduating, and then they're, they're right in the fray. You know, there's one story I just read recently about a nurse who had been out of nursing school a few years, and, you know, they're kind of on the COVID unit in, in a, one of the big New York City hospitals. And it was really a sad story. They, you know, they ran out of body bags. Mm. The whole, the, and it was just such a sad story of being unable to care for the people and, yeah. and everything. And I see the danger that there is in some of these uh, jobs as well. So I, I, uh, that was, you know, kind of, and let me just get set the stage here. So yeah. one pillar of my, of my giving has been the nursing programs, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. my wife and I are going to try to create 20,000 nurses. Yep. And right now we've done about 4,500. Nice. The second pillar, I think, is really helping people who are um, on the bottom or they're not that lucky and they... They need help and they need help right now. They're, they're, they're not going to get a job as a nurse. They're not going to get any job. Mm -hmm. they, need, they need help. Mm -hmm. So this has led to support of things like food banks mm -hmm. and job training and uh, soup kitchens and homeless shelters and lots of other things that, uh, that my wife and I do. And, you know, I don't think anybody's going to get a job if they're hungry. And so I've really got to yeah. feel the need to really help people and do that. Yeah. And then the third area of giving is, is Catholic Church, mm -hmm. which I think, um, you know, some people don't like Catholics and various other things. But I think that if you look at the number of people who are educated in Catholic schools, uh, taken care of in Catholic hospitals, fed by Catholic soup kitchens, et cetera, I, people may not like it, but try try doing without it. And they, they do a lot of things. And I, I, yeah. I really applaud that. And I am a Catholic and I'm not necessarily proud of everything about it, but I'm kind of think it's good to really help people and they, they try. And by the way, one of the reasons why I appreciate you talking about this is I really enjoyed listening to people who are intentional about their generosity and listening to their paradigm. And as you're listening to this, like, I wanna invite you into thinking about what is your strategy? What is your thoughtfulness around generosity? Just real briefly, Bill, a couple of years ago, I was reflecting on what is it when I die that I want to have been excellent at, you know, like some people are aficionados of cigars and some people are connoisseurs of wine. Other people love music. I'm a cinephile. I love film. And I was like, man, if there's one thing to really become excellent at, I think, you know, our, our faith, I used to be a pastor and, and, and my faith is a big part of my life as well. And, you know, both of us, it's, it's, it's better to give than it is to receive. And so there's this ancient idea that life is found in generosity. So if you're going to get really, really, really good at something, generosity is one of those things to get really, really, really good at. And I think as you start stepping into intentional generosity, it's harder than it looks. Like, it's not just like, like cutting a check is kind of lazy sometimes. Are you a fan of uh, Chuck Feeney at all? Are you familiar yes. with him? I am. He gave all his money away and he really had a plan and, and implemented it. I admire that. Yeah, I do too. And there's lots of different ways to do that. I'm not saying people have to do that. And, and for our listeners, there's a book called The Billionaire Who Wasn't and it's worth reading about Chuck and his journey. And the reason why I mentioned that with Chuck specifically is he's like, hey, if you're smart enough to make money, you should leverage at least some of your intelligence to give it away because it takes a lot of intelligence to give money away well. 
And so, Bill, I want to thank you for explaining the three pillars. And, and just out of curiosity, I, I noticed that you, you didn't mention the one-off strategy. Is there a space in the pillars for one-off stuff? I'm not saying that's even a good idea, but how do you relate to that? I do do it. You know, I, I, I'd say I do it uh, because somebody that I know and trust asked me to do something. Yeah. And I say, okay, that person, it's important to them. They're a good person. It sounds like a good idea. It's not my idea. I'll give them some money. And I don't, I won't say I regret it very often because I think it's, it's their passion. And I think it's very important to have somebody who's really committed to an idea. Mm. And, and that's what uh, these, these people have had. When you do decide to like, quote, write a check, there's high trust, there's high relational proximity, and the, not only high trust, but there's a high respect. I hear you saying that those people are going to steward that well. Yes. Yeah. Now, well, that was one of the things in Chuck's book about how essentially the last half of his life was dedicated towards finding people who are worthy. He would call them worthy of philanthropy, like trying to find people who are going to, who are big thinkers, big dreamers, you know, and you found like the Catholic church is a good example of that. You trust them to steward the resources well and hunting for that sometimes is harder than it sounds. It is, but you know, I would point out that I, I have, don't do that at the individual level. Right. I do it at the at the in, institution level of yes. a particular charity. When I was younger, if I saw somebody on the street and they looked healthy and young, I probably wouldn't help them. I'd say, well, <laughs> gee was they're okay. They don't need any help from me. If they were old and sick or, you know, broken in some way, I would I would tend to help them. I've since concluded that I don't know what's going on inside anybody. Mm. <laughs> um, and so that I, I'm happy to help people who need help. And I don't kind of judge the individual, uh, or their worthiness of the individual. Yeah. And so, for example, when it comes to the nursing scholarships, you know, I don't give any nursing scholarships. In effect, yeah. Somebody could say, "Well, you give you know thousands of them." Yes, but I give them to Catholic or Villanova or Virginia or Maryland, mm -hmm. and they give it to the they give it to the students. I don't give it to the students, and uh, they they figure who is the the best candidate, either based mostly based on need, but based on worthiness as well. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and and so another thing I wanted to get your thoughts on, and I don't think there's a necessarily a right or wrong way. That's not true. I definitely have a preference, but um, I do some too. people, <laughs> some people, I think say, "Hey, I'm going to make my money and then be generous." How would you respond to that? Hey, I'm just going to work really hard in my 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, make a bunch of money and then be generous. Does that resonate with you, or would you suggest a different path? I'd suggest a different path, but I didn't take it. I was always somewhat generous. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I should have been more generous earlier than I was. And what makes you say that? Why would you say that? No, I see right now how, how hard it is to give the, give the money away and give it away mm. wisely. Mm. And I also, I, I tend to be, I tend to sometimes be very particular. I do a lot of due diligence. I want to go visit the nursing school. I want to meet the dean. I want to meet some of the students. I want to understand what their needs are. And then I'll make a gift. Mm -hmm. And the gift might start out at $500,000 a year for this nursing school or that one. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to see how they do with the 500000 And do they do a good job? Do they do what they say they're going to do? And they give people scholarships. And do they, they turn out good nurses who are compassionate and competent and the like. Mm -hmm. And then over time, the, the amount that I give generally grows. But I, you know, I would say that um, I wish I'd been doing that years before I, before I was. And mm -hmm. I think now uh, my wife and I support about eight different nursing schools. But I would suspect over time, 
and I hope we don't have too many deans of nursing schools listening to this, <laughs> but that we go to 25 or 30, we we can significantly increase it because it's the need is great, yeah. and uh, obviously I'm really proud of what those nurses do, and I I think I get another benefit out of this, Jason. That's hard to explain. Yeah, which is I feel that every time one of the nurses that we support is helping somebody, then I'm helping somebody. Mm -hmm. And it's it didn't start out that that was any part of the goal or anything, yeah. but it certainly is one of the outcomes that I get. And, you know, sometimes I'll be at a hospital or I'll be someplace, a, a doctor's office, and somebody come in and they'll, they'll thank me for their scholarship. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of... Um, a great feeling and and uh you know i don't do it for that feeling but it it's wonderful when it when it happens i'd say yeah so then with that just to paraphrase gener generosity is harder than it looks and it takes longer than you think that it does to get good at it when would you suggest people start really taking seriously that part of their lives when they're 20 yeah why why do you pick 20 they're old enough to actually understand and see kind of the pain and suffering some people have they don't really have any resources then, but there are so many other things they can do. Yeah, You know, you, you can go serve breakfast at uh, one of the soup kitchens in town here, or you could, frankly, you could help walk somebody across the street. Yeah, I, I just think it, being, it teaches us all to be a lot kinder. And frankly, you have much, much to give even when you're 20. You don't have a billion dollars, but you have so many things that you can give in terms of your time and your respect. And frankly, sometimes... One of the things I find with dealing with people on the street, mm -hmm. I've learned one of the first things I say is, what's your name? Mm -hmm. I want to, and you know, everybody's got a name and it makes them feel like they're someone. They're not, you know, just a guy on the street with bad shoes or something. They're, they're somebody who's got a name. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's a nice uh, bookend. We started the conversation talking about valuing self-worth over net worth and learning how to find self-worth and giving worth and dignity to others and helping them find that. And Bill, I want to thank you for your time. There's so many things that you model well, and I want to take a second just to thank you for that. One is, you know, you can be generous without pursuing prosperity. And I think that's a mistake. I think you can pursue prosperity without pursuing generosity. And I think that's a mistake. And I want to thank you for as your, as your journey for learning how to hold both in, a, in that tension and I know you're not done yet. You, you and your wife have got plenty of gas left in the tank. And I'm excited to see how you continue to explore how to do both of those simultaneously. Thank you very much, Jason, for, for talking, letting me talk to your audience. And also, I think maybe watch this space. Maybe there'll be other things that the next time we talk, you'll see some of the results of that. Well, I would be thrilled to talk again. But by the way, you mentioned uh, when people who you trust ask you for things, you say yes. And the only reason why we get to talk right now is because, Bill, you have a mutual friend of ours and who asked if you would spend some time with me this morning. And I want to thank them and thank you for your time. So thank you so much, Bill. Would love to have you back, but I'll, I'll give you a break and I'll bother you again real soon. Great. Thank you so much, Jason. I enjoyed it. Take care. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Me too. Thank you for listening. For more resources like this, as well as articles and videos by all of our coaches, go to novus.global and click on resources. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. That helps us out a lot. Rate and leave a review. If you didn't like us, just leave us alone. We drop new episodes every week and we don't want you to miss out. If you want to explore hiring a Novus Global Coach or becoming an executive coach at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching, email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and remember, dare to go beyond high performance.